0: Welcome to Coffee House. Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus, was written by Mary Shelley, published in 1818. And Mary Shelley was the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft, the feminist, author, and overall accomplished human being, and the anarchist and philosopher William Godwin. She was married, eventually, to the poet Percy by Shelley, and she actually includes uh, some allusions to lines from the poetry of Shelley in Frankenstein, and she also edited and promoted his work. Now, this is a character. This is a legitimate character, Frankenstein. I counted almost a hundred films featuring this monster. And as is often the case, uh, the story of the creation of this character and everything around it was dependent upon a serendipity wherein her and her crew were traveling in Europe. And in 1815, they traveled to Frankenstein Castle, which had stories surrounding it of alchemy. Somebody in there doing untoward experiments. And later in the trip, uh, Mary Shelley, Percy by Shelley, and Lord Byron, what a crew to be able to just hang out with. They had this competition to write the, the best horror story or something like that. And so that was the beginnings. It took her a few days to come up with the story, but that was the beginnings of this particular book. And she wanted to base it on some of the ideas that were swirling around the Frankenstein castle that they had visited. Some have called it the very first true science fiction story in history. And this was 1818, of course. And they make that distinction because it, in this book, what was apparently for the first time, somebody uses science as kind of the background for things that go awry. <laughs> because it was a, a scientific process that was being used to to do what was done. But of course, it, it's a tremendous modern mythology. Few works of classical literature have infiltrated modern culture more And we almost had, we were so close, The Dooku, The Dark Universe, Cinematic Universe. I know it's something I've mentioned before, but this was something they were trying to do. They were using The Mummy, whoever owns all these monsters or whatever, the rights to them. I don't know if you can. They must be in the public domain by now. But some studio, maybe Universal, was attempting to make a cinematic universe based on these characters. You know, Dracula, The Mummy, (laughs) Frankenstein. The Invisible Man, but the first movie that came out uh, that was supposed to be the basis of this was The Mummy with uh, Tom Cruise, and he was a producer on it too. And it didn't do so well, and it was not a good movie. <laughs> so they kind of put a hold, a uh, kibosh on the whole Dooku. But after having read this book, I think that they could do it. They could make a legitimately awesome cinematic universe based on these characters, but it had, it would have to have the right tone. Of course, the Marvel Cinematic Universe had the benefit, having gotten its start with Iron Man. And what's his dude? Robert Downey Jr. is just so damn charismatic. How the hell could it have failed thereafter? And they got the luck of getting to cast all the most perfect people, and you just ha- need a couple of standouts and one broad idea that hadn't been done before, and bam. And suddenly you got a cinematic universe, but so this one apparently, the Dooku is dead. But maybe it will be resurrected, which would be apropos of the subject matter, of course. So, as always, we're going to go through the contents of this thing. There will be spoilers, lots of spoilers. Sometimes, when it comes to the fiction, I will just give kind of a broad overview of the book, and sometimes I'll go into detail. This time, we're going into detail. So, there will be spoilers. You know, read it yourself if you want to ahead of time. Otherwise, just enjoy this, and then go back and read it. Or, if you've read it before, obviously, then you don't have to worry about that. So, the contents of Frankenstein. We start out, and this book is told in a kind of a unique way, in that it's told as a story from the voice of Victor Frankenstein, but also in a massive quotation from the monster at one point. And it's actually based on letters that are being written by somebody that he meets later in the story, that Frankenstein meets later in the story. So it's actually told in this kind of unique structure, although it doesn't really affect it until you get to the end, so um, initially it's just Victor who's telling the story, Dr. Frankenstein. So, Victor has a strong interest in alchemy as a kid and wants to understand the world, you know, has a very intense drive to understand the world, and before he leaves for university, his mother passes away and sends him into grief. In this grief, he gets lost in experiments, and when he goes to university, He excels at chemistry and science and wants to use this later in his ambitious life to do something that's a massive accomplishment. So, this ambition expresses itself in the will, the interest in trying to impart life to lifeless materials. Of course, this is kind of within the context of the heartache that he feels related to having lost his mother. So after months or years of experiments and working this out, he's finally successful. He imparts life unto lifeless materials, and the result is a horrific creation. He is horrified by the creature and ends up fleeing. The monster is eight feet tall, with this kind of yellow, transparent skin, and it's just cobbled together, and it's just hideous. So when he returns, the monster is gone. He doesn't know what happened. So he's despondent after the ordeal, and he has to take time to recover with a friend of his, and try to figure out what the hell's going on, what he should do now. So eventually he gets news, while he's in recovery, he gets news that his brother, William, was killed. And so he has to go travel to figure out what happened with William and gets a vision of this monster, and is uh, convinced that the monster was the thing that did the killing of William. But this uh, live-in person, a person who lived with them when they were kids, Justine, is accused and convicted of having committed this murder. So now he has this guilt of feeling that the monster did the murdering, but Justine was the one who was punished for it. So it just sends him into more unraveling as a person. At some point he's traveling like in this glacial area and the monster approaches him. And the monster asks, he says, okay, just sit and hear my story. I promise you'll be sympathetic to what has happened. Just let me talk to you about this. Follow me and we're gonna, we're gonna talk about this. The last few months, this is what happened. So the, so Victor agrees and goes to hear the story. And I think this was the end of the first part when uh, it was initially published, which is a great cliffhanger. (laughs) So then we get the monster's perspective and it's told, it's not really told from the perspective of the monster, it's told in a quotation as if it's being told to somebody else, but it's the monster saying, okay, this is what happened. The monster, after what happened at the lab or in the experiments, he ends up wandering and had to learn to use his senses. So he talks about having run into trees and birds and finally learning how to hear and learning what a tree was and how it felt and how to see. So he's going through this wonderful flowering process of, tr- of understanding his own senses and figuring out what the world is. And eventually he's attacked by townspeople when they see him. So he gets this early indication of how people can be. So he flees and ends up, uh, he finds this hovel that's near a house. He just just finds it as a, a warm place where he can hide and be away from people. But in the process, the people who live in the house, there is this older man who's blind. There's a son, Felix, and his sister. And they're all in this house and they do the same process every day where they have to go out and get wood and they have to trudge through the snow and they have to get water and eggs and things like that. So he starts listening into the conversations of these people, the cottagers, he calls them, and he's listening into these people and, and what they're saying to each other. Initially, they're just sounds, but eventually he learns, you know, the names of each one, and he learns things that they reference around the house and the things that they do. And so that's how he learns how to speak and what speech is and how to communicate. So over time, he's learning how to speak French and develops this very deep affection for the people who are in the house. These are the only people that he knows, these people seem very nice, and uh, they just protect each other. There's some sadness related to a past trauma that they experienced, but he's trying to puzzle all these things out. He finds these books, and there were three books, and I know I have it in a quote later, but uh, I think it was uh, Plutarch was one of them. And ironically, I just read some quote about how Shakespeare cribbed a whole bunch of the stories that he got from Plutarch. And Paradise Lost, which is an excellent one. Any monster that's hiding away in a shed somewhere. Let's make sure they get a Paradise Lost. I mean, that's a good one to start out with. And then some... Uh, another one, which I can't remember. But... Uh, so there are these three books that he gets to read. And this is how he learns about the world. Then there's more discussions about more topics. So one of the... A woman shows up. And it's going to be like the, the wife of Felix or something like that. And they start discussing more complex topics. You know, they discuss history. And they they play music. And, and there are all these broad categories of philosophy and those kinds of things that they're discussing now that the monster is getting privy to. So the monster over this time, he's developing, you know, he has this deep affection for these people. He has been helping them along the way, unwitting to them. He's been chopping wood and leaving it out on the front porch. And he has been clearing the snow to make it easier for them to traverse and all these sorts of things. And they, they just think the spirit or something like that, that is out there for these things that are getting done. So eventually he builds up the confidence to approach these people and say, okay, can you, can you be my protectors? You know, he had that experience with the townspeople before. Can you be my protectors? Can we work together? You've seen the kindnesses that I've done for your family. And just overlook how I look, my terrifying stature and all of that. And let's just work together on this and be friends. Let me have some kind of companions in this world that's so cold. So he he makes it a point, one day everybody's out except for the, the blind man. He approaches, he knocks on the door, he says, can I talk to you? And the man beckons him in and says, yes, of course I'll help you, I'll do whatever I can. And the monster goes through this process of saying, there are these people that I'm trying to help, and I want them, I want to be accepted by them, and I want them to help me, but I'm not sure how to approach them or how to talk to them. And eventually comes around to the fact that it's them, it's the people who are in this house that are the ones he's trying to approach and trying to appeal to. And the blind man is supportive and saying, yes, you know, I'm going to help, I'm going to do what I can. But then Felix and the uh, the rest of the crew show up, and Felix is terrified and goes straight to violence, throws the monster out. And the monster, being eight feet and very strong, etc., could have ripped him limb from limb, but is absolutely devastated at the fact that the people that he cared about so much over the course of these months that he got to know them, could treat him in this way, in the same way that the the other people did. And so he he goes back and hides in his hovel without anybody seeing and sees that the family decides to abandon the house. Uh, So they leave, and so they're gone, the only people that he had a real attachment to. In despair, he leaves and starts raging against humanity. He feels this this particular hatred for them now because he was thwarted in his attempt, his very reasonable attempt, to try to endear himself to them. And in this rage, he runs into William and he kills William. So he admits to it, but he demands that Victor build him a companion. His, His idea is that I'm lonely in this world, I'm the only monster, everybody else is going to hate me, so give me a companion, a woman, so that I'm not alone anymore. And it takes him some time, but he eventually convinces Victor to do this for him. He says, once I have this companion, we will flee, we'll go far away, go to South America or something. You'll never see us again, and that'll be the end of it. Victor takes a lot of convincing but ultimately agrees to do this. Now, when Victor goes back, he's struggling with this idea, and we switch back to his voice. He struggles with the idea. He believes the monster is stalking him wherever he goes. He decides he's gonna go to England to study how to build a female version of this person, of the monster, and does a lot of traveling, but he has these concerns that they will reproduce. If if he creates another one, maybe they reproduce and there's suddenly a scourge on whatever people they're near. So he delays it as much as he can, but he eventually just abandons the project, says, I'm not doing it, I'm not going to build another one of these monsters. So as he's traveling, eventually the monster shows up, he walks through his doorway, and demands answers for why this isn't done yet, and why it seems like he's not working on it anymore. And Victor just comes clean and says, I'm not building it, no matter what you do, This, I'm not going to do it, it's wrong, I'm not going to compound the problems that I've already created. So the monster is infuriated and says, you will regret this on your wedding day. So Victor's in despair and just hops in a boat and is floating along, eventually washes up on this shore, and when he gets there, he is taken into custody and accused of a murder. The dead person turns out to be his friend that he has known for a long time. So he's taken to prison, uh, but the judge is really sympathetic to his story and contacts his family, and eventually Victor is exonerated. But over the course of this whole time, obviously he is worried about what the monster will do. He's He feels that he's been stalking him this whole time. And he's really reluctant to marry Elizabeth. But he says, I need to find some kind of happiness in this world. So he marries her and then he promptly finds her dead in their bedroom. So finally, it has come to a head. And now his only purpose in life is to seek vengeance on this monster. And he's chasing the monster down. Into the Arctic, the mantra has a special resistance to cold and, and extreme temperatures and can eat very little and drink very little and survive. So he's chasing him just deeper and deeper into the Arctic until he's, he's stranded on this ice floe with the few remaining dogs, uh, you know, sled dogs that had survived this long. And a ship comes by just in time and picks him up. And so he convinces the ship and the crew, the captain of the ship and the crew, to try to chase this monster down as he's telling them this story, this whole story about what has happened with this thing. And so they agree and they are doing it, but eventually they get caught in this, this ice at some point and they can no longer pursue them, and people are dying, and Victor is dying. And so we shifted the perspective again to the captain of the boat, who's sending letters to his sister about what's going on, and everything, all the problems with trying to pursue this monster. And eventually, Victor succumbs to his illnesses. After having convinced them multiple times to keep going, keep going, they say, we can't do it anymore. Victor succumbs, and he's buried in a particular place. The man who is the captain of the vote, he goes to visit Victor's grave. because He really admires this person, how you know the how ingenious he was to do it in the first place, and how determined he is to try to right this wrong, and all the things that he's been there. He really admires him, he goes to visit him, and the monster's there, and the monster laments the death of his creator and his station in the world, and uh, that is pretty much the end of the book. Wonderful story. It's, it's a wonderful story. It's well put together. We're going to go into the analysis now. Like I said, uh, I loved so many things about this. There are some some odd glaring issues, which I could touch briefly here, but it's heavily dependent on people not seeing an eight-foot-tall monstrosity. (laughs) That is like the undergirding necessity of the whole book, is that people don't recognize this guy anywhere. (laughs) Because he keeps killing people, and other people get blamed for it, but nobody ever sees the eight-foot monster that's doing it. I mean, I don't know what special ninja skills were imbued into the lifeless materials when he was created, but that is something that is kind of ridiculous the way all the way throughout, that nobody ever sees the guy. Because he just follows him. He follows Victor all over the world, and nobody sees him. He kills multiple people. Nobody ever is a witness to any of these murders, to the extent that other people could be accused and convicted of these murders which doesn't make a whole lot of sense but uh, other than those it's a really poor legal system And there's uh, the obsessive nature of Victor, so something that's animating about the character in the beginning of his obsessive nature to want to do this and his ambition isn't something that really plays a role as you go through the rest of the story. It just becomes uh, I'm terrified of what's going to happen and a revenge thing. That's all it becomes as you go along, which that aspect of his character should have been reincorporated throughout the whole thing, you know, where that should have been much of the reason that he was ambivalent or ambiguous about uh, whether he should do or not uh, creating another one that could have been an interesting character moment of him being so ambitious in creating another one and wanting to find out if they can reproduce and what would happen versus uh simply just being terrified of the thing and worried about you know more people are going to get killed and then just wanting revenge that aspect of his character just doesn't come back for victor as you go along the rest of the story so i thought that was a, a missing element My favorite part of the whole book was the monster in the hovel when he was just listening to people and learning about, you know, these people that he was starting to care about. And there was a lot of buildup for that. And you got a great payoff to that in how they responded, that he put in all this work and did so many things for them and learned so much, all the way from not being able to figure out his senses and not being able to read or communicate or understand language, all the way up to talking very eloquently and understanding the ins and outs of human psychology and um, making a move to try to better things and everything just going awry. This was a great part. It has really clean writing, it's simple and digestible story. It wasn't as philosophically interested as I thought as you would go along, because initially, you know, there's a big philosophical question of man creating something living, and the problems that arise from that, and probably the problems from science, and the concerns, and, and the temptation of trying to act like a creator, act like God. But kind of the philosophy as you went along just, just disappeared. There, were, there wasn't much philosophical rumination. There were some, and I'll, I'll go through some of the quotes here. Which I should have already done. Why did I jump over those? Oh, because I just jumped right into analysis saying it was great. So there wasn't as much philosophy as you went along or deep thoughts about that kind of stuff, uh, apart from what I'll read. But it's all the credit in the world for creating such a resonant mythology. I mean, this is something that happened within the last couple centuries. You know, much of our mythology is from a thousand years ago, (laughs) at least. And the ones that are really resonant and still people are interested in. But this one, Frankenstein, the idea of Frankenstein, the monster that comes from it, all of that has been something that has been reinvigorated over and over and over again. Like I said, to the tune of nearly 100 movies that I counted related to this character, which is incredible. That's incredible. There's something very deeply interesting about this psychologically for people. So anyway, here are some of the quotes so you get an idea of the the writing style and the ideas that are in it. I am by birth a Genovese, and my family is one of the most distinguished of that republic. So that's how the book opens. I like just doing the opening line from every book. Every fiction book, anyway. Quote, thus strangely are our souls constructed, and by such slight ligaments are we bound to prosperity or ruin. End quote. Interesting, you know, comment on the human situation. Quote, I paused, examining and analyzing all the minutiae of causation, as exemplified in the change from life to death and death to life until from the midst of this darkness a sudden light broke in upon me, a light so brilliant and wondrous yet so simple that while I became dizzy with the immensity of the prospect which it illustrated, I was surprised that among so many men of genius who had directed their inquiries towards the same science, that I alone should be reserved to discover so astonishing a secret. End quote. So that's the initial interest and inclination to try to create life out of non-life. Quote, a flash of lightning illuminated the object and discovered its shape plainly to me, its gigantic stature and the deformity of its aspect more hideous than belongs to humanity, instantly informed me that it was the wretch, the filthy demon, to whom I had given life, quote. That's when he realizes who killed William, quote, yet you, my creator, detest and spurn me, thy creature, to whom thou art bound by ties only dissoluble by the annihilation of one of us. End quote. This is kind of presaging the 20th century and the death of God, and I don't know if it was meaning to do that because that was the monster talking is that, my creator, you detest me and spurn me, and it's only dissoluble, the connection that we have, by the annihilation of one of us. And this is when the monster is learning about, you know, the rest of the world and more complex things when he's in the hovel. Quote, I heard of the slothful Asiatics, of the stupendous genius and mental activity of the Grecians, of the wars and wonderful virtue of the early Romans, of the subsequent degenerating, of the decline of that mighty empire, of chivalry, Christianity, and kings. I heard the discovery of the American hemisphere and wept with safety over the hapless fate of its original inhabitants. End quote. So, learning about the world, all the things that have happened in the world, and, you know, obviously a totally racist (laughs) why the Asiatics gotta be slothful, (laughs) but uh, it's a wonderful passage about all the things that he learned while he was sitting in there, the breadth of the world that had occurred up to that point. Quote, they consisted of paradise lost, the volume of Plutarch's lives, and the sorrows of Werder. End quote. So those are the books that he found and was able to read while he was in the hovel, listening to the people, Paradise Lost, Plutarch, and the Saras of Werther. I thought that was Werther. Was it not Werther? <laughs> but I, I copied it directly out of the book. So Werther, all right. But Plutarch, Paradise Lost, you know, great books. Get a lot of stuff from that. But maybe if he had been given, like, the Berenstain Bears or something, maybe he would have turned out a little more, <laughs> a little cheerier. I don't know, a novelization of Caddyshack or something. I don't know. Something else could have made him happier than the things that he actually read. I too can create desolation. My enemy is not invulnerable. This death will carry despair to him, and a thousand other miseries shall torment and destroy him. So, this is him realizing his power over his creator. And this is when uh, he's being pursued, after all the things have gone down, he's being pursued into the Arctic by Victor. And he leaves him little notes. And this is what he says My reign is not over yet. These words were legible in one of these inscriptions. You live, and my power is complete. Follow me. I seek the everlasting ices of the north, where you feel the misery of cold and frost, to which I am impassive. You will find near this place, if you follow not too tardily, a dead hare. Eat, and be refreshed. Come on, my enemy. We have yet to wrestle for our lives, but many hard and miserable hours must you endure until that period shall arrive." End quote. So taunting him as he's chasing him down to try to get his revenge. Quote, But as even so, the fallen angel becomes a malignant devil. Yet even that enemy of God and man had friends and associates in his desolation. I am alone. End quote. So the enemy of God, Satan himself, like I said, this might have been the influence of the literature. <laughs> Satan himself still had friends. He still had a crew. He still had people he hung out with. And yet this monster doesn't even get that. The enemy of God can have associates and friends, but I, a monster who's just thrust upon this world, am not able uh, to even have a single companion. Quote, am I to be thought the only criminal when all humankind sinned against me? End quote. So, big picture-wise, there is so much in here. (laughs) This isn't the biggest of pictures, but there is so much in here that could have been used for a wonderful Dooku, dark universe, cinematic universe. He could have gone through all this stuff and you think he's dead at the end, but really he's alive, and then he shows up to fight Swamp Thing or something. I don't know, but still, it's just, there was a lot of fodder here. I didn't realize how complex the kind of inner workings of the monster were, (laughs) was. I only had kind of, uh, you know, really superficial understanding of what the story actually was when it came to Frankenstein of just a guy in a lab and he makes Frankenstein and Frankenstein goes attacks the town. The town kills him. And that's the end of the story. That's what I thought the story was. But there's a lot more going on here on here than that. So there are variations of the story, this, again, big picture, variations of the story that come out, one that was excellent that I watch on a regular basis, Ex Machina, you know, it's a very similar story, it's a a guy who's a genius, who wants to build life, that's his his whole goal, and the kind of moral of the story is don't overdo (laughs) it, like, you think think you've got a handle on this stuff, you don't really have a handle on this stuff, stop stop trying to play God. Uh, In that context, it's a machine, it's AI, but it's the same kind of a story. But you do have to wonder what is so appealing about this character and the ideas around this character. And you do have to wonder how much (laughs) this presaged or understood what was coming in the next century. In the 19th or the 20th century. They were in the 19th century. In the 20th century, what would come with the death of God, the attacks on the creator, the idea at least, of having a creator who has control over you and looks out for you, etc. When you have no companion, when you have no reverence for your creator, is this the kind of thing that... That happens that you just lash out to the rest of the world, and that has very important implications for society at large and psychology individually. So, it's a very interesting story. Like I said, there were some aspects of the storytelling that were pretty weak, and it could have been more philosophically deep or interested, but maybe it was. But it wanted to do it in such a way that it was so digestible that it just made perfect sense no matter who you were, what your level of understanding, or reading, or knowledge was you can digest this and it can make you think more deeply about what's going on in the world. So this is one, you know, I've, we've read a few that I've thought didn't deserve kind of the place that it had within the list that we have, which is an, a combination of 40 different lists. But this one seems like it deserves its place in the annals of literary history. This is a, an excellent, important work, and I'm so glad I got to read it. So, anyway, this was Coffeehouse. That was Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. If you read it, let me know. You know, say some things about it. I would appreciate to hear from you. Otherwise, we are moving on. We've still got part four, I think, of Hostages No More. And then I'm working on the... Not Chaplin. Who's the guy in in, uh, in England? The amazing guy in England that everybody loves. Not uh, Not Will... Churchill, Churchill. Yeah, so I'm working on that one. I think Thomas Soul is going to be next. I have to read some more Thomas Sowell soon. So it might be Thomas Sowell next or, or San Francisco. Since San Francisco has been in the news recently for some terrible things that are going on there. Anyway, uh, but we will leave that for the future. Right now we've got some Frankenstein to digest and that'll be that for this week. I hope all is well and I will see you on the next one. All right, bye.